Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Four people, three men and one woman, are in custody over the killing of 49 people at two mosques in New Zealand. New Zealand has experienced very few mass shootings. The last ones were in the 1990s. Here's New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern earlier today. We, New Zealand, we were not a target because we are a safe harbour for those who hate. We were not chosen for this act of violence because we condone racism, because we are an enclave for extremism. We were chosen for the very fact that we are none of these things. It is clear that this can now only be described as a terrorist attack. Noor Tavis said he was in the front row inside the Al-Nur Mosque. He told the New Zealand Herald how the attack unfolded before he was able to jump out of a window. Suddenly we hear, like, noise. Like we thought uh, what's going on here. We thought maybe it could be like just like uh, speakers, something, sounds of speakers or something like this. But it carries on. I said, no, this is not so right. Something is going on. And then it started just start noise and noise after that. It's just shooting, shooting and shooting. Uh, everybody, everybody gets panicked. So all you see is just people screaming and running around, and people on the floor. Another survivor who was in the Linwood Mosque described a similar scene of horror. It's a small mosque. It's, there were around 60, 70 people there. And just around the entrance door, there are old people sitting on the chairs and praying. And he started shooting at them. He had a helmet, he had a vest and backpack, and he was shooting indiscriminately. Like, there was a lady screaming, and... And he shot put point blank in her face. The eyewitness reports have left a lot of people reeling. One New Zealand news anchor expressed shock on the air today. New Zealand has always prided itself on being a peaceful country. Terror attacks didn't happen to us. We were safe here on our islands at the bottom of the world. But on what should have been just another Friday in Christchurch, all of that changed. 49 people dead. 49 Muslims massacred in their places of worship. In the coming days and weeks, there will be many questions about how this could have happened. But first, our Muslim community and all of New Zealand must mourn for those murdered in this most barbaric of attacks. But Walid Ali from the Australian news program The Project has a different take in this commentary. He isn't surprised at all. You'll have to forgive me these won't be my best words. The truth is, I don't want to be talking today. When I was asked if it's something that I wanted to do, I resisted it all day until finally I had this overwhelming sense that it was somehow my responsibility to do so. And maybe that's misguided. But of all the things that I could say tonight, that I'm gutted and I'm scared and I feel overcome with utter hopelessness, the most dishonest thing the most dishonest thing would be to say that I'm shocked. I'm simply not. There's nothing about what happened in Christchurch today that shocks me. I wasn't shocked when six people were shot to death at a mosque in Quebec City two years ago. I wasn't shocked when a man drove a van into Finsbury Park Mosque in London about six months later. And I wasn't shocked when 11 Jews were shot dead in a Pittsburgh synagogue late last year, or when nine Christians were killed at a church in Charleston. If we're honest, we'll know this has been coming. I went to the mosque today. I do that every Friday, just like the people 
in those mosques in Christchurch today. I know exactly what those moments before the shooting began would have been like. I know how quiet, how still, how introspective those people would have been before they were suddenly gunned down. How separated from the world they were feeling until the world came in and tore their lives apart. And I know that the people who did this knew well enough how profoundly defenceless their victims were in that moment. This is a congregational prayer that happens every week like clockwork. This was slaughter by appointment. And it's scary because like millions of other Muslims, I'm going to keep attending those appointments. And it feels like fish in a barrel. But that isn't the scariest thing. The thing that scared me most was when I started reading the manifesto that one of the apparent perpetrators of this attack published. Not because it was deranged, but because it was so familiar. Let me share some quotes with you to show you what I mean. The truth is that Islam is not like any other faith. It is the religious equivalent of fascism. Or the real cause of bloodshed is the immigration program which allowed Muslim fanatics to migrate in the first place. Or as we read in Matthew 26:52, all they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. And those who follow a violent religion that calls on them to murder us cannot be too surprised when someone takes them at their word and responds in kind. How do those words sound now? Now how do they sound when I tell you that they weren't part of the manifesto? They were actually published today after this terrorist attack on an Australian parliamentary letterhead. And I know they came from someone who I don't particularly want to name at the moment, who all parties have denounced. I also know that the leader of one of those parties that denounced him once described Islam as a disease Australia needs to vaccinate. And even that party is kind of on the fringes despite some valiant attempts by our media to change that. But I also know a senior figure in our government once suggested we made a mistake as a country by letting in Lebanese Muslims in the 70s. And I know there are media reports going back eight years of a shadow cabinet meeting in which another senior politician suggested his party should use community concerns about Muslims in Australia failing to integrate as a political strategy. That person's now the most senior politician we have. So while I appreciate the words our leaders have said today, and in particular, Scott Morrison's comments and his preparedness to call this terrorism and the strength of his comments more generally, I have something to ask. Don't change your tune now because the terrorism seems to be coming from a white supremacist. If you've been talking about being tough on terrorism for years and the communities that allegedly support it, then show us how tough you are now. For mine, I'm going to say the same thing I said about four years ago after horrific Islamist attack. Now? Now we come together. Now we understand this is not a game. Terrorism doesn't choose its victims selectively. That we are one community and that everything we say to try to tear people apart, demonize particular groups, set them against each other, that all has consequences, even if we're not the ones with our fingers on the trigger. That was Walid Ali from the Australian news program The Project.
Coming up after the break, we'll hear the story of Turkish asylum seekers. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Human Rights Watch says prolonged and arbitrary jailing of critics on bogus terrorism charges has become the norm in Turkey. Hugh Williamson from Human Rights Watch says the Erdogan government's hounding of its critics and opponents has dismantled Turkey's rule of law framework and turned justice on its head. Thousands of people from the Turkish opposition have fled after the 2016 coup attempt and subsequent crackdown. On Monday, Turkish asylum seekers will tell their story at the Stateless Film Festival at the Davis Theater in Evanston. The principals are here with me now. Jonas Smart is here, an award-winning Turkish-American creative director, marketing strategist, brand architect, and artist. Thanks for joining us, Jonah. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And Onur Tekmen is here. He's uh, born in Istanbul in 1984 and fled Turkey for the United States in 2016. Over, for over 15 years, he's directed short movies, animations, and documentaries in Turkey and the U.S. Thanks for joining us, Onur. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. And also with us is Andrea Sutherland. Uh, she's with the she's the artistic partnership director of Acting Out Awareness, an organization that's partnering with individuals and organizations and communities to promote personal and social change through the arts. Great to meet you, yeah, Andrea. Thank you so much for having us. Tell us about uh, the, this project and how you got this thing together and what what, what you're doing here. Uh, well, Acting Out Awareness is producing this project. Um, it came through a meeting. Uh, with a person from Huddled Masses, which is an organization that supports asylum seekers. Um, We uh, were made aware that there are filmmakers local to Chicago um, who wanted to raise awareness about some of the issues that you mentioned that were happening in Turkey. Um, We met with them, and we subsequently found that uh, producing this film festival uh, would be a good way to introduce people to what's going on and let them know the urgency of the situation and how can they get involved uh, in helping those right in their neighborhood. Um, Onur and Jonah, I wanted to ask you a bit about um, the situation itself. It's kind of hard to get an estimate of how many people fled Turkey after the crackdown in 2016, but but it's been thousands, and it's university professors, it's members of the opposition, it's members... Uh, of of the uh, Gulenist movement, and uh, explain your situation there, Onur. Yeah, I want to start with my story briefly. Um, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I used to be a reporter and director in Turkey, and I planned my uh, I planned to shooting a uh, shoot movie, short movie, uh, on uh, July 16, uh, 2016, one day before uh, the coup attempt. Uh, sorry, one day after the coup attempt. And then uh, everything was ready, and uh, I was about to go to bed. And uh, I saw news, and there was a coup attempt. I surprised. But just I uh, I was thinking my movie, and could I do or not? Then, of course, I couldn't do. Uh, following days, uh, RS started. Uh, my, my life uh, was changed totally uh, in one day, even in one night. Uh, then... Uh, my friends, some of my friends uh, were arrested, and uh, we heard allegations of 
torture about them. For example, I have a friend. Uh, he uh, he helped me. He was supporting me about the movies uh, shooting. Uh, he was arrested, and as we heard, uh, he he was beaten in custody. Uh, then um, we spent like two or three months, like nightmarish, uh, and then we decided to uh, flee Turkey. And uh, you're a member of the Gulenist movement. Is that uh, your friends were in the Gulenist movement, and that's why they 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 were getting yes. cracked down on. They were being blamed for the coup attempt in Turkey. Yes, yes, you are right. And um, is that uh, how did that? work out? I mean, did you say, well, oh, I, I know I will be targeted because of who I am and what my faith is? Okay. Um, my wife uh, was working, used to work in uh, a TV channel, uh, links to Gulen movement. Uh, that's why the first reason uh, I was afraid of. And then my friends, uh, my friends was uh, jailed uh, the following days in two or three days. Uh, that's why uh, I was waiting for my turn, and uh, uh, like this. Uh, so you fled. Yes, I fled. <laughs> I fled Turkey to U.S. Um, Jonah, how about yourself? Um, <clears throat> first of all, I would like to uh, say that we're also still in the process to digest this whole situation. It's really uh, hard to swallow. Uh, um, we used to see all the uh, movies, old movies about the mid-centuries that people uh, can be violent, people can be, uh, you know, they kill each other for, for the uh, just for the nationality cause, for the you know, just for the reasons for themselves. But we never thought that uh, there is a potential possibility that it's been it could possibly be happening in our country in this century. Uh, um, in this time frame that after the uh, crackdown of the uh, coup attempt, we uh, first-handly experienced that uh, situation. Uh, and that actually uh, kind of, we, we also experienced that uh, once once you have the power and once you have the uh, power to uh, to occupy media, you can you can change the people. I mean, we saw that government can do that too. But once we realized that the whole country, whole pe- people of the street, can also be changed uh, by just listening to TVs, by just listening to the news, uh, that was a, a whole different level of experience for us. And the government branded the Gulenist movement a terrorist organization. Exactly. And. and- People, if they're polled in Turkey now, they will say that they think the Gulenist movement is a terrorist organization. It is. The unfortunate thing is all of the media outlet is held by the government right now. So people on the street in in Turkey, they really don't know because whatever they get as a news, they just got it from the one only one sources. So that's really sad. It's really, uh, you know, put us in a situation that what we can do uh, about the situation which there is only, you know, one way we can use it. I mean, we can uh, we can change this, vice versa, other way, uh, you know, just using by the media, but the free media here. So this is how we come up with the idea to just produce those movies so we can put it on uh, online and for just a movie, uh, like mm-hmm. a film festival. And it's a, a few short mm-hmm. films. It's short films. It's no, it's not a big, long film or anything. They, they're... Um, 
Tell me about one of the films. Uh, you've got several. The one uh, that I personally worked on, uh, Story of Gyokan. Uh, he's a teacher. He's a teacher loved by his students. Uh, he also loved to be a teacher and loved to t- teaching. And he uh, he just learned just like an honor uh, on TV that there is a, a coup attempt. And uh, days later, uh, they come, they you know uh, come to uh, his uh, home and they uh, beat him up and torture him to do you know uh, to the jail. Uh, e- even though he was sick, they did not give any medicine to him. And I mean, this is actually we're not exaggerating. We're not uh, like a based on true story. This is exactly a true story. This is reported by the you know uh, even with the government paper. Uh, and then he died in prison. Pr- prison uh, after after uh, one and a half year, he got his paper that he's in, he was innocent. Innocent. And this is um, in part is that because his story was so well publicized, and the government felt it had to admit that it had done something wrong, and and decided to reinstate him as a teacher and clear his name. They they just kind of, well is that. Um, is that a sign that something that, that the government is responding to criticism and, and has to uh, kind of take this in? They don't respond to criticism because uh, once you declare a state of emergency, uh, it, it's been uh, like they can do whatever they want, basically. But what, I, what makes me really sad about this situation, what left behind, it's, it's, a, it's the biggest torture for, for their kids, for their family. They didn't even give them the corpse, and they told, they told them that he's going to be buried in uh, um, uh, Trader's Cemetery. This is, this is so sad. I'm talking with Jonas Smart and Onur Tekman in discussing the Stateless Film Festival they're participating in. It is Monday at the Davis Theater in Evanston. And coming up in a few minutes, we'll have more film. Uh, Milos Stalik is going to interview Christian Petzold about his new uh, thriller, Transit. Stay tuned for that. Um, Andrea, now I know you've got some plans, some ideas about what you can, this is your first uh, crack at putting together these films and this package, but you've got some ideas about what you might do with it. I think the educational value of this film, and especially that we uh, do have the filmmakers um, here in Chicago, uh, that's very important. And I think that listening to their stories um, is very important. So we hope to take these films around to colleges uh, and universities um, to help educate um, the youth that are going to be going out uh, and hopefully helping to advocate and helping to change some of the situations that are happening internationally. Is the U.S. government responding okay to the asylum applications of people from Turkey? Is that going all right? So far, we, we have uh, seen good news. Yeah, we, I, I personally know a couple of cases that already been uh, you know accepted as an asylum case. And uh, just for this reason, Harold Messers, uh, you know, the, the organization that helping uh, for the refugees. And uh, that's a HIZMAT organization? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're also yeah, helping uh, for those people uh, who just, you know, flee from uh, Turkey for that reason. Um, I, I, I believe, I personally believe, one of the biggest help, actually, is, uh, is the trauma that they are having in, in Turkey. I mean, uh, can you imagine that, uh, like, a um, 12 years old, 10 years old kid in front of the classroom uh, and humiliate with uh, his own teacher in front of the other students? 
And when they came here, they don't even go to school. They didn't want to go to school. Are, are, what's been the reaction of the Turkish government here in, in the United States? There's a Turkish consulate. There's a, you know, when we saw the prime minister of Turkey come, there were protests and, and people got beat up in the streets. It was, uh, it was a pretty wild scene. It, there's active, resi- I mean, the Turkish government still, the, the state of emergency is over, but they still think people are terrorists and, and claim people are terrorists. Yes, um, almost any criticism of government officials or policy is quickly recharacterized as a threat to national security. So, for example, we are here, but um, people who live um, in different countries, foreign countries, except Turkey, uh, their relatives um, are in danger in Turkey. So uh, they are afraid to raise their voices. For example, if uh, we uh, we have some... Uh, Communications. We get some communications with the um, uh, um, Turkish government, and uh, we are afraid of. We are afraid of, and so um, we are uh, hiding our uh, real uh, names. That's why uh, it's too risky. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us and discussing your situation and the situation of people who are who have fled Turkey and being persecuted in Turkey. Owner Tekman is from uh, Turkey fled in 2016, and Jonas Smart is an award-winning Turkish-American creative director. And thanks very much to Andrea Sutherland from the Artistic Partnership Acting Out Awareness. And the Stateless Film Festival is in Evanston on Monday at the Davis Theater. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You so much. much. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's Friday and time for our film contributor, Milo Stelik from Facets. This week, he has an interview with the German film director, Christian Petzold. His new film is Transit. So, Christian, it seems to me that Transit, which is your third film with a one-word title, seems to be a film which you've been making for the last three films because all of your films are about characters in transition or changes or characters that are in some way facing history. What interests you in this? I think cinema has something to do with searching for an identity. In the German history, we have here two world wars. We have the fascism. We are looking, we are searching for who are we? And I like to see people on their way to an identity. If this identity is wrong or this identity is uh, captured or stolen, but I want to see how they work on this identity. And the identity in this case has to do with refugees from Germany before the Nazis who end up in this almost mythical and not very well understood town of Marseille or city of Marseille in southern France, still then a free city for the French just in the nick of time. But this whole ominous weight of Europe and fascism is encroaching upon them. Yeah, when I first stayed in Marseille and read the novel by Anna Segers, I was astonished that in each house you can find a name that their German intellectuals, Jews, communists, homosexuals had lived there and waited there for more than one, two or three years to get the possibility 
to reach the USA or Shanghai and China yeah, or Istanbul to get out of this harbor. And for me, a harbor is a place where, like the French word port, on one side it means a door, yeah, and on the other side it means a, a harbor. This open door to the world is totally closed like a prison cell. And in this prison cell, in this transit prison cell, all these people had to wait. And they had lost their identity, their home, their, their language. They can't use their language anymore. And in this era, um, the novel by Anna Segas has found its place. Well, and all of the characters, as all of the people there in real life, were extremely fragile because we can't imagine, in a way, the terrible fragility and the fear and all of this disconnection of being in this limbo, not knowing where they're going, where they're going to be able to get out, are they going to be safe, are they going to live or die? And at the same time, it seems to me that the novel, which you, of course, carried into the film, is a novel about atmosphere, of painting the atmosphere. Yeah, when you are in this transit situation, when you are in this diaspora situation, yeah, and you have to be flexible, you have to be clever and smart, you have to lose everything what you have in your mind, all the memories of Germany, of your language, of your family, of all these sentimental things. You have to throw your sentimental things away to be clever and smart and to survive. But all these people there, they're filled up with memories. They're filled up with scars. They're filled up with the memories of the people they have lived together, they loved. And so when they met there on one side, they want to go out, but on the other side, their minds are going back to Germany. And so this Marseille city is on the borderline between the future and the past. And so own presence is the presence of nothing. And they have to create a presence for themselves. Sometimes they create it with a love affair. Sometimes they create it with writing down something. A novel is a possibility to find yourself, to say, that's me. Here I am in this transit diaspora situation. I am a subject. I'm a human being. And of course, this reads very contemporary because of Calais, because of the refugee situation in Europe and worldwide. But it seems to me you also took an enormous risk at making this film very contemporary and not always worrying about historical detail. That's right. And for me, when I'm looking to find money for this movie, I have always to talk about this thing that I make a period picture in contemporary times. Huh? When I go through a city, like in Marseille, when you go through Marseille or you go through Paris or through Berlin or other uh, capitals in the world, you can see old houses, you can see new houses. When I go through my street where I'm living and now I'm sitting here in Berlin and my street here in Kreuzberg, you go through the street, you see the old houses, the new houses, and on the streets there are names on the ground, yeah, on the boardwalks. There are names of people who had lived in our houses and they're killed by the Nazis between 1939 and 1945. And so for me as a citizen in the city, I'm always on both sides. I'm in a historical city and also in a contemporary city. And this feeling to be a part of the past and also a part of our present or contemporary times, this both together, it's for me uh, to live in cities. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic speaking with filmmaker Christian Petzold, whose new film, set in Marseille and adapted from the novel by Anna Segers, is called Transit. 
So in adapting the novel, which is very literary and well-known, at least I think in English it's been translated for quite a while, what special challenges did you find in getting rid of some of the weightiness of the literary and finding this visual space for it? I must say the Anna Segas novel Transit is one of my favorite novels. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's also a novel on a borderline, like the subjects in the novel. It's on the borderline because it's written down in a little bit in this expressionistic German style. Mm -hmm. But it's also, on the other hand, you can feel and hear and see it between the lines and in the lines. You can see the American short story. You can feel Hemingway. You can feel the desire of Anna Segas to get out of this shit old Europe to reach the new American style, a new life, a new society and a new language. Yeah? This is both are inside this novel. And this I like very much in the novel that the novel is not a traditional novel. It's a little bit like Chandler novel. It's a little bit like, like when you read, I don't know if, if this guy is very popular in the USA, but Jim Thompson, I, sure. I like him very much. He's a of course. Novelist. It's also, you never have novels in Germany where where there is a guy who's talking uh, as a subject, let's say, I, I am sitting here and I want to talk to you, and you, you are the reader. So I have to use this novel by Anna Segers also to hear the literature, which is also on the way. I, I must say, the books and the language are also refugees. It's interesting because, you know, people will try to typecast, and I've already seen this in what people write about your film as they wrote about the book, is try to typecast it into some kind of a safe space. So, for example, it's been called, I can't remember whether it's the book now, the novel, or the film, but called Existentialist Noir, which is really meaningless. Mm -hmm. uh, and ultimately, because it's really a film about the kind of fog that these characters exist in, neither existentialist, non-wire, those are kind of cheap excuses, because it's really a film about character. Yes, it's a film about making character, losing character, construction of character. Yeah? And uh, you can see that the main, the main character, Georg, yeah? he is like a little gangster. He's not a political, he's not Jewish, he's not homosexual, he's not communist, he is... He takes money, he's a thief, yeah? he's, right. he's a drifter, I must say. Yeah? Right. And he learned in the novel and also in the movie, he learned to be a human being, to feel loyalty, love, desire, to find his identity. And this I like very much, to find an identity in a situation where no identity is possible, yeah? In, the, yeah. in the transit, yeah? in the limbo, I must say. And this I like very much. When the Americans say that is. Um, this is Kafka and Casablanca. It's not so far away from the book by Anna Segers. It's interesting because, you know, people will try to cast it into a specific type, but at the same time, the film feels so contemporary because of this temporal constant dislocation, and that's what's contemporary because it's what every one of the millions and millions of refugees must feel today. Yes, that's right. And the cameraman and me, we always thought about that every room we want to make pictures in, all sets we are working in, they also have to be transit rooms. There are so many windows, doors, wind, yeah? in this movie, streets. Nobody has 
a real home by its own. Yeah? And the only home, the only apartment, which is a little bit like a home, is the apartment of the contemporary refugees, yeah? which are in the middle of the movie. You can see it then for one minute. And what makes it so powerful is exactly that dislocation, that whole sense of how individuals can find their own humanity in the middle of these disasters. I remember a friend of mine, Czech writer Arnos Lustig, who wrote many things about the Holocaust, always used to say that he's always interested in that moment when man is capable of doing goodness, performing an act of goodness. And so in a way, transit becomes really a road to the positive. That's totally right. And the moment when uh, Georg is repairing the radio and he's hearing a tune, a lullaby from his childhood. And in this moment when he's giving something to this little boy, yeah, the first time a door opens for him and he has the possibility to be someone, yeah, to be a really positive, good guy. Yeah? Right. And he can see it the first time in his life. And I think I like that in extreme situations, you can find yourself and not in the ordinary situations. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic. I've been speaking with filmmaker Christian Petzold, whose new film called Transit opens today. Thank you very much. You can see Transit at the Music Box Theater, and I wanted to mention and correct that I mentioned before the Stateless Film Festival was at the Davis Theater in Chicago. It's not in Chicago. It is in Lincoln Square at 4614 North Lincoln Avenue, and that's where the Stateless Film Festival is on Monday. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport with Nari Safavi and let you know about some international good times to have on the weekend. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi, is here, as he is every Friday, to tell us how to have an international good time. It's great to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Uh, you have a recommendation for us. It's not technically on the weekend, but we're going to stretch the idea yeah. of what the weekend is yeah. this we're, week. We're going to Japan, and uh, it's, a, it's a program being done by Fulcrum Point, which is one of the most innovative art, art organizations in this in this town, music, uh, musical group. And they are doing uh, an evening called March Madness um, on Wednesday 20th at the Constellation. They have a Japanese silent cinema from the 1920s. And they have uh, basically they're going to be playing that, uh, screening those, and they're going to have uh, compositions, avant-garde music compositions, play to those silent cinema, uh, silent cinema screening. So it's going to be a very interesting uh, uh, performances by Stephen Burns, Tatsu Aoki, a lot of really talented musicians involved in this. Sounds really fun. I'm a big fan of silent cinema, and the experimental silent stuff is wildness. And Absolutely, I'm sure this will be. 
just as wild and just as wild with fulcrum points uh, on brand of wildness too. Absolutely, absolutely. It, sh- it should be an interesting thing to check out on uh, on the next Wednesday night. And that's at Constellation. You can see it there. On to our featured element, and uh, here we're going to India. Yeah, we're going to India and uh, Mandela Arts, which is a local uh, organization focusing on South Asian arts, uh, 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 presents uh, a program called Ratri Music and Dance at the Night, uh, Music and Dance of the Night, and it's being performed uh, Sunday, March seventeenth, at two p.m. at the Riva and David Logan Center for the Arts, nine fifteen East Sixtieth Street on the campus of University of Chicago. And here in the studio with us, we have Pranitha Nair, Executive Director of Mandela Arts, and thanks for joining us. Hi. And uh, Aswati uh, Chanat is here, the Program Manager at Mandala Arts and a performer in Rathi, the, uh, the, the, the dance that you're doing. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. I am great. I'm glad to have you. Tell us a little bit about your arts organization. What, what, what do you do? So Mandala was founded in 2014 uh, with the focus uh, to promote uh, the South Asian performing arts uh, from the Himalayan mountains to the Indian Ocean. So it goes beyond India, uh, India being the the cultural form that that influenced the arts in Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal. Uh, so we incorporate all those art forms as they've moved, and it also represents the uh, the the desires of the the South Asian diaspora that is in Chicago. So being from South Asia or India does not just mean an immigrant from India. It could be from West Indies, Trinidad, Tobago, where the population moved a long time ago, or from uh, East Africa, South Africa, Southeast Asia. So we incorporate all those art forms in an innovative way to present uh, performances for our audience. Uh, it's so great to go to events uh, that have to do with South Asia. There's always dancing. There's always dancing. There's <laughs> never an event without dancing. And it's always terrific. And uh, people uh, are learning it from a young age. Everybody goes to dance school uh, Ashwathi, uh, tell us about yourself. Uh, Sure. Um, Yeah, we are definitely known for dancing. We can probably thank Bollywood for that. (laughs) Everyone's familiar with Bollywood. Um, Yeah, it's a part of our culture to be moving to a great beat. I think the music supplies the movement. Um, I grew up dancing because my mom was a dancer herself, and she was taking classes while she was pregnant. And so as soon as I could start moving, I was learning Bharatanatyam, which is a classical Indian dance form. Yeah. And uh, tell us about the kind of dancing that you're, you're, you've got several forms that you're going to be doing on Sunday. What, 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 what three are you doing there? So we'll be representing three forms from India. One is Bharatanatyam, which Ashwati would be doing. Uh, Kuchipudi would be represented by Laksha, who would also be doing the vocal beatboxing. And Kathak uh, from more associated with northern regions of India will be performed by Anaga Sundarajan. And there'll be uh, an ensemble of uh, local musicians providing live music. And we do have an international artist present. Yeah, that's so terrific. And we have uh, her in the studio with us. Laksha. Laksha Dantra is uh, an Indian arts dancer who's uh, performing on Sunday. Thanks very much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much. Um, tell us about yourself. Tell us about um, coming from India and, and, and what you're going to be doing. 
Uh, I'm so excited uh, being in the United States that I always believe the Bharatanatyam has a lot to give to the uh, uh, the upcoming generation since it is, uh, I think Bharatanatyam is formed uh, how you see in the present day in the 17th century. So it has a lot to say. If I take, if it is traditional, it is traditional. If I think it's modern, it's modern. So Bharatanatyam that form has every inclusivity in, in it. Not only Bharatanatyam, all the Indian classical dance forms, I would say. For example, I am representing um, Kuchipudi art form in this particular uh, Ratri dance program. So I'm very excited to do that. And uh, I am a transgender woman. I raised in Kerala, a uh, southern state of, state of India. And my father used to uh, encourage me a lot for the dancing field. And I did my uh, graduation in dancing. So I'm very excited to share my experience with people here. That sounds great. And uh, d- how common is it for transgender people to be dancers in India? Is this a, a regular occurrence or is this unusual? Um, well, it is transgenders are normally um, very artistic for me. If I, for my knowledge, like I can say, I have many friends in India. They're all maybe makeup artists, singers, dancers, choreographers, and they are just born with some artistic talent that I would say for when it comes to transgenders. Uh, we, and now you could do some, you're doing some beatboxing in addition to uh, traditional yeah. dancing at, yes. at the event, and you could do some for us here? Of course. That's because Natuvangam, because Natuvangam is like more directing all the uh, events, like all the uh, per- percussion, musician, dance movements, everything uh, controlled by this Natuvangam, and we, I can do a small for, uh, piece from that. That would be terrific. <laughs> Thank you. I can start like one, two, three, start. Drukurta tom. Ta drukurta tom. Taka tarita dhana ta jonutam. Tarita tam. Dhana ta tam. Jonuta tam. Dimita takundari kita taka ta tarikita takarnaka jam. Drukurtaka taka drukurtaka drukurtaka taka tarikita takarnaka jam. Drukurtaka taka drukurtaka drukurtaka ta tarita ka jam. Taka tarita ka jam. Drukurta ta. Thank you. Laksha, and uh, she'll be performing on March 17th at 2 o'clock at, uh, the, at, and at, at the University of Chicago at the Logan Center. Explain where you're going to be at the Logan Center, because I, I thought it was going to be in the great big auditorium, but you're actually doing a really intimate kind of interesting thing there. Sure. So uh, Indian, all Indian arts are very intricate in their nature and they're best viewed at close quarters, whether you take their um, uh, the miniature paintings or the right. ornamentations in dance and music. So we're going to present it for, a, uh, for an audience on the, in the penthouse on the ninth floor of the Logan Center where it is most appropriate for close viewing of what the artists are doing and the intricacies of the art mm-hmm. form. And there's great view outside of that. Oh yeah, and, and the everything. backdrop is the backdrop of the city of Chicago. In that room. Yes, say. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a great place to have that. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. And we do have. Uh, we are uh, for a mingling of the audience with the artists. Mm-hmm. We are serving tea and uh, a tea party after the event. Oh, excellent! Yes. <laughs> that's that's great. Uh, what uh, where where does the uh, in, uh, the regional aspect of this? You know, are you uh, are, are you do doing a specific regions in, in each of these performances? Uh, like, uh, wh- I'm just wondering that uh, 
um, you know, you said you covered the entire territory. I'm just, what is the program going to exactly involve? So in uh, all the dance and uh, performing art forms from India uh, come from a particular text called the Natya Shastra, uh, mm-hmm. which is a treatise on the art forms. And then the art forms got regionalized with the local flavors in based on where they moved. If Bharatnatya moved to Tamil Nadu, it had the flavor of Tamil Nadu. Right. Kathak was in the royal courts of northern India, so it mingled with the influences uh, from Persia and beyond to become a Kathak court dance in North India, whereas Kuchipudi is from the state of Andhra Pradesh. Everybody knows Hyderabad. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, so it represents the regionalities of... Uh, so it's like a stream. You know, they all move together. It all moves together. It, it diverts. It goes into different forms and it comes back together. So it, whether it's the intricacies of the hand gestures or, uh, or the hand gestures or that become different. It's the delineation of it. The technique differs, but the con- conceptually, it's the same. How's that for an answer, Nari? Exactly. It was, it was nuanced, huh? Exactly. That was pretty good. Yeah. No, it is very good, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's very, very full, and, and it's very rich. It sounds like so, it's very rich. So program. the three dancers are, yeah. very, are trained only in the dance form that they're doing. Right. Uh, but the exciting part uh, for the viewers to watch is, like, how does it come together? And how do they diverge? Yeah, exactly. We're yeah. talking about Rothery Music of the Dance and Night at the Logan's Theater uh, in High Park on Sunday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You'll have a great view of the city uh, from up there in the penthouse. I understand we have some music. Uh, well, we have two different cuts. Uh, tell me, what, wh- which one should we play? Um, we can play Kadana Kaduhulam Dilana. This is the culmination of our program. It is usually, um, it's a, it's considered a joyous ecstasy. That's what it translates to. So the musicians are pulling out all the stunts. The dancers are showing off the dynamic, the dynamism of their choreography and rhythmic complexities, um, and it all it it celebrates the art forms. Um, and this particular Thilana is in the ragam or melodic framework of Kadana Kadulam, which is the ragam of the god of love. So we are celebrating love in the night. And that's music from Rothery, the, uh, what we'll be hearing on Sunday at the Logan's uh, Center. And uh, it's from Mandela Arts, Rothery Music and Dance of the Night. Um, that's terrific. Now, you're, this is a one-time-only affair, but uh, you'll be doing other uh, productions in the future. What, what kind of things should we look forward to from Mandela Arts? Uh, so Mandela was also founded primarily also to reflect 
the way the South Asian culture is moving forward in 21st century. So on May 18th, we are doing another production, um, and I will let Ashwati speak about it. Sure. We're very excited to share our new Mandala Makers Festival, which is celebrating um, composers, choreographers, and other visual and performing artists that are a part of the South Asian diaspora that are creating art from their lived experiences as members of the diaspora. Um, so we will have three choreographers who all have different experiences um, sharing that through movement. Um, so it'll be like a work in progress festival. So we're very, we're just excited to offer that platform to That's these terrific. And people can look makers. at your website, uh, MandelaArtStar.org, and get more information about yes. the, the company and about the future upcoming programs. Thanks a lot for joining us. And um, we were hearing there from Ashwari Chanat, the program manager at Mandela Arts, and Pranithra Nair, and she is the executive director of the uh, organization Mandela Arts. And in from uh, Kerala, India, Laksha uh, Duntra, and she is a transgender Indian dancer who is performing on May, March 17th there at the Logan Arts Center. And Nari Safavi, nice to see you, and thanks for another fine edition of Weekend Passport. It was a privilege to be here. Thank you. Monday on Worldview, we will be talking about an interesting topic. The U.S. has a strategy when there are hostages taken. They do not negotiate with hostages. I will talk with the executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists, who has done some research on this strategy, and we will discuss uh, why he thinks it should be revised. So listen for that Monday on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland for production. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.